0: Right now, though, we are following up on something that was talked about just earlier today. There was a news conference addressing yet uh, more concerns when it comes to health care. And we are going to continue that conversation. And Dr. Alex Nataros joins us on the line now, a doctor in Port Hardy. Dr. Nataros, thank you so much for taking some time.
1: Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks. To you and your listeners for having me.
0: Well, I was so, so happy that you were able to join us and talk more about this. I listened to some of your comments that were made not too, too long ago about what's happening when it comes to Island Health and your situation specifically. Uh, without, I know without getting into a, a ton of detail, and, and it's a bit strange anyway, seeing this and hearing this kind of played out in the open in the media, but how are things standing right now as far as discipline that you've been given from Island Health and where you stand as far as practicing medicine?
1: Sure. So I, I work on uh, our ward in Port Hardy uh, Hospital. I work in our long-term care in Port Hardy Hospital. I do procedures in Port Hardy Hospital. And I also work in an Island Health clinic uh, right adjacent to the hospital and do some outreach um however uh you know there's been a suspension uh in my emerge privileges there's an internal review that's ongoing so i won't be able to explore that very much with you but i'd love to chat more about what we discussed today with uh, the green party leader and what what kevin falcon for the dc liberals has called for which is the need for physician assistance in british columbia and the need for healthcare workers safety and and the need really to protect nurses and doctors on the front lines as we're just trying to do our job.
0: Right. Okay. And and let's talk about that because you are still then practicing on the island just at this point, not practicing in the emergency departments? That's correct. All right. And you, you have been very vocal and very public about your call for physician assistance and for the ability to be able to hire physician assistants. It's something you've done in other jurisdictions. And what is there any update or what is happening with that? Well,
1: it's surprising, Jill. Um, over three weeks ago now, myself and my colleague Lisa Stewart from the Canadian Association for Physician Assistants uh, wrote a letter with a formal proposal for a physician assistant in Fort Hardy. Um, I've interviewed a number of physician assistants and have hired one to start June 1st. We sent that proposal specifically to the Honourable Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. Still three weeks later, we have not heard back. Um, We followed up with similar proposals uh, to the Shadow Minister of Health for the BC Liberals as well as the Shadow Minister of Health for the BC Greens, and both were very welcomed and uh, meetings have been arranged or will be occurring in the next few weeks with both B.C. Liberals and B.C. Greens, in support of physician assistance. So it's really, you know, just a question. What is Adrian Dix afraid of with physician assistance? Because as members of his own party. I've been working with NDP MLA Finn Donnelly since August on physician assistance. And our MLA for the North Island, Michelle Babchuk, has met with us and roundly endorses our call for physician assistance for her riding.
0: And what does a physician's assistant do?
1: Well, you can think of it, Jill. I mean, your listeners will understand this, right? You know, a physician, I've got one set of hands. I can only do so much. So when I'm working on the ward in my hospital, I am limited. I can't also be in our long-term care and in clinic. Whereas if I'm able to hire a physician assistant, that means someone who works under my license can be seeing someone in clinic or in long-term care or doing community outreach under my license. It quickly expands the reach of a physician and it's much more cost effective than just hiring more physicians. This is someone that I would pay and you know I'm ready to pay eighty to a 100, 110 thousand dollars per year plus benefits. You compare that to the new payment model for physicians, three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand, and you know, we have to ask why are we not spending our health taxpayer dollars more effectively to provide health care? We have a minister in Adrian Dix who's begging Justin Trudeau, for more money in the Canada Health Transfer, and yet he's not even exploring the solutions that his frontline providers are offering him that are more cost-effective than his own UPCCs.
0: Would it be similar to a nurse practitioner, or would a physician assistant do more?
1: I wouldn't say they'd do more. Um, so again, a nurse practitioner has an independent license, so they work on their own. And I work with several outstanding nurse practitioners every day in Port Hardy. A physician assistant would work under my license, so it would be delegated authority. So, you know, I mean, Premier David Eby, as does Minister Adrian Dix, they have assistance. If they're allowed assistance, why am I, as a physician, not allowed a physician assistant?
0: And like you said as well, and I think you mentioned this during the news conference also, this is something that it's, it's not, this is not an idea that you've come up with on your own and say, saying, let's try this. This is something that is done elsewhere.
1: It's in every province outside of B.C. there's support for physician assistance. It absolutely boggles my mind that Minister Adrian Dix isn't even willing to sit down and talk to myself or Lisa Stewart with Canadian Association for Physician Assistance about exploring solutions to our North Island health care crisis when we have endorsements and support from our Mayor and Council, our Member of the Legislative Assembly, Michelle Babchuk, as well as our Member of Parliament, Rachel Blaney, and our Rotary and many others.
0: And, and have you been given? I, I know you said that the minister, the health minister, hasn't responded to your request. So is it been? There's no response at all in in that you haven't heard from the minister at all, or have you been told any reasons as to why the province might not be wanting to go down that road?
1: What I can say, Jill, and what you and your listeners might understand is that um, physicians work autonomously. We work. And we, you know, really value our autonomy in terms of our ability to make clinical decisions and deliver high-quality patient care with the diagnoses that we make. That is outside the control of the Minister of Health. That potentially is threatening to a Minister of Health that values control over anything else. I would posit to your listeners that we have a Minister of Health that doesn't tolerate physician autonomy. And physician assistants increase our ability to be autonomous and increase our ability to provide high quality, cost-effective, culturally safe care. I think that's a key missing piece here, Jill, for you and your listeners. Our North Island is a beautiful place. We're rich with Indigenous culture. We have many First Nations that are doing incredible work every day to regain their culture and to strive towards true reconciliation. However, Without health care, without meeting their basic needs and with these historical disparities that we've had as a result of residential schools and historical trauma, there isn't an ability to meet the health care needs of the Indigenous population. And yet here I am as a physician calling for a physician assistant and the Minister of Health won't even meet with me. That amounts to systemic racism.
0: Uh, in, the, in the system, as, as far as your argument being that this could make it better uh, for everybody and make it a more, a more equitable system?
1: You're exactly right, Jill. Uh,
0: you mentioned during the news conference as well that uh, you're going uh, to be operating at a clinic and, and this will be happening while you're, you're not permitted at this point to be operating in the emergency departments. Uh, how will that change things or, or what is that going to look like?
1: I think it's a really exciting step. Um, I've got two physician colleagues, including one who's, you know, excited to join us from outside of Port Hardy. He's a new recruit who's excited to work with a non-island health facility. And, uh, you know, we're going to be offering a non-profit model of a community health centre that's in collaboration with our local pharmacy, Hardy Bay Pharmacy, Hardy Bay Drugstore, as well as hopefully with in partnership with the First Nations Health Authority and other providers um, we're going to be set up, and I've procured the space with my partners in Thunderbird Mall in Port Hardy. It's a beautiful space. We're uh, adjacent to North Island College, Sacred Wolf Native Friendship Center, and other key players in delivering high-quality patient care.
0: And, and will that be starting up uh,
1: immediately? Well, you know, I've I, you know, settled on the space, and we, we just need to get all hands on deck in Port Hardy to build our clinic rooms. So it's going to take a few months of transition. Um, So, again, I'm going to be continuing to work at my island health clinic. But as I stated earlier today, given the conduct of island health towards me, I do not feel safe practicing in an island health facility.
0: And and in the meantime, and I, and I get that uh, you can't go into great detail. But in response to what you have said uh, about what's happened to you and your privileges being restricted as far as the emergency room, uh, we did get a statement from uh, Dr. Ben Williams yesterday, who's the uh, Island Health Vice President of Medicine, uh, going into great detail. And again, it's 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 rather bizarre to 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 hear and to see such great detail being uh, talked about publicly. Uh, but in the meantime, will this continue? Will you? be trying to get your privileges back?
1: Jill, bizarre is the word, and it's completely inappropriate. Yesterday during our rounds in the hospital in Port Hardy, I had to take a moment with my nursing team and explain that the public statement by the chief medical officer for Island Health that was filled with misinformation and undermined my ability as a physician trying to provide care to my patients on the ward in our hospital yesterday in Port Hardy, I had to explain that we're all in this together. We're just trying to provide fair, evidence-based, high-quality care to our patients, and I hope that what uh, Ben Williams stated wouldn't interfere with that. But it is bizarre, to say the least.
0: Well, we will be watching to see what happens next, and if there is any movement uh, as well on your call for physician's assistance. Dr. Alex Nataros, thank you so much for taking the time and for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, Joe. I wish you and your listeners a great weekend.
0: Well, some new jobs numbers are out, showing that Canada added about 150,000 jobs last month, and it's a lot more than what a lot of economists were predicting. And as expected, though, jobs in the accommodation and food services categories, information, culture, professional, scientific, and construction is also very high on the list when it comes to new jobs. In fact, the construction industry is a leading source of strength, adding, thousands of new jobs. So what does that mean for the industry and what types of jobs are they? Chris Acheson joins us now, president of the BC Construction Association. Chris, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Not a huge surprise that construction would see a lot of the new jobs, but what are your thoughts on being so high on that list with the job creation?
2: Yeah, it's it's not surprising uh, to us at all. I think that from uh, what the industry's been telling us, what our, our employers uh, that we represent have been telling us for a long time is that uh, if there are people, they've got jobs for them.'re they're, they're incredibly busy. Uh, they've got lots of work for individuals. and and the fact that uh, that that people are, are starting to to see the high value opportunities that exist in the construction industry, it's it's really refreshing that that those employers now are being rewarded. Uh, with the with the talent that uh, that are are joining uh, the workforce in construction,
0: and are there specific areas in construction where you're seeing the most uh, number of vacancies or the most need for workers?
2: I think we've got uh, you know we've got a lot of activity in the uh, high density residential areas for sure. Uh, we've still got lots of major projects uh, on the industrial side, um, reaching peak capacity in in uh, in British Columbia as well. But really of uh, all employers, whether they are small, medium-sized employers or whether there are large uh, construction entities in this province, they all are uh, you know, have, have told us for a number of years that they uh, have uh, labor shortages, and, and so uh, as people become available, they, they are happy to employ those individuals.
0: Is it also, and and not that this was ever warranted, but but has there been in the past maybe a reluctance to go into construction, or I, I mean, no job is for everybody, but has there been, has it not been kind of uh, under the light that it should be under, as far as what the pay can be and what the benefits are and the working hours and the positive parts of it?
2: Yeah, in the past few years, we've really started to shed a positive spotlight on. The type of lifestyle uh, that that can be uh, achieved through work in the construction industry. You work. Um, you, you start early. Uh, you finish early. You get paid well. More and more employers are, are coming on board with with um, uh, benefits plans that that are, are treating their employees um, uh, as, as the most valuable commodity that they have, um, and and we're seeing uh, these uh, individuals starting to migrate towards. Uh, the construction industry and overcoming some of the stigmas that our industry has, uh, that has held them back, I think, from having the, uh, the diversification in their workforce and, and the equity participation in the workforce. And so we're seeing leadership uh, really coming to the fore the last number of years in construction that are uh, really having uh, zero tolerance on, on job sites for bullying, hazing and harassment. Uh, For providing benefits and supports for people that um, that need, uh, you know, whatever they might need in terms of uh, uh, keeping them happy, we we've done a a a good job over the past number of years in attracting people uh, to the industry. But by far, uh, what where uh, the the most of the benefits come now are are making sure that we put the efforts in to retain, uh, you know, the the individuals who want to continue to stay in this industry for the opportunities it can bring.
0: Are there issues then even going the other way in that construction, as we know, even if it would have slowed during the pandemic, we didn't see construction shut down like we saw some other industries and some other sectors having to really pause when things were, were shutting down temporarily. Uh, what I understand, though, there, there were vacancies kind of before the pandemic, and has, has it gotten worse then as far as companies trying to find employers?
1: Yeah,
2: like, I think you raise a great point to just remind everybody of that during the pandemic, uh, construction demonstrated to be highly resilient, safety uh, conscious and was uh, deemed non-healthcare essential throughout the pandemic in British Columbia. That wasn't the same in many other uh, neighboring jurisdictions. And uh, throughout that time, there, was, um, there, there were some people who, who maybe for um, uh, concerns related to the pandemic, Removed themselves from uh, the construction labor market, but by and large, people understood that the construction employers were there to um, uh, to put in the the, the necessary safety guidelines to to make sure people were safe and productive on job sites. And um, we really rode out the the pandemic uh, exceptionally well. And throughout that time, there was still labor shortages pressing uh, for the volume of activity that was going on in this province. So. Um, even though there was a, a period of uncertainty around, you know, March and April of 2020, um, uh, very quickly as construction responded uh, uh, to the needs of the economy in British Columbia, the, the workforce was still um, required. It was still in demand and employers were still looking for any available people that they could find to work in the industry.
0: And you mentioned as well kind of how the culture has changed as far as what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think a lot of industries or a lot of workplaces have seen that. But we don't have to go back too, too far to think of a time when construction would have been considered, and rightfully so, a more male-dominated industry. How is that changing as far as more women getting into construction?
2: Yeah, it it still is very male-dominated. And it's very, you know, to... uh, to, to what employers are doing is they are recognizing that we are also like many other sectors our workforce is aging and so um, as they become more welcoming to uh, a, a a you know a new demographic of workers they are um, you know encouraging um, more more women more equity uh, deserving groups to to join the ranks there are programs that that exist in British Columbia that are encouraging new first-year apprentices to, to sign on with employers. Um, and, and so there's just this awareness that is coming from throughout the leadership within construction that is saying, uh, you know, what worked in construction and who worked in construction in past generations is not reflective of who we want to work in construction and who we need to work in construction going forward. We need everybody who wants to participate, to feel like they have an opportunity to participate in the industry. And uh, that's just the changing nature of many sectors, uh, but, but no more uh, evident than in, in construction. So we welcome that change, and we're seeing a tremendous uptake from uh, small, medium, large uh, contractors and the leadership in construction.
0: And are you seeing more jobs or positions in construction that require some form of post-secondary schooling?
2: Well, we, we would always see that there is, um, like we, we consider anyone who's going through uh, their apprenticeship stream towards their, their Red Seal or their journey person ticket, uh, this, this these are incredibly valuable um, uh, educational uh, streams that they're taking, and the commitment that they have to have to be aligned with employers and sponsored by employers throughout that journey is, um, is incredibly impressive. But, but what people often forget is that in the construction industry, there are uh, a myriad of pathways that people can take. And so, you know, whether it's um, architects and engineers and project managers and accountants and lawyers, uh, there is a, a, a rich, um, um, uh, I would say, spectrum of valuable education uh, components that make up our industry. Um, and uh, all of them are equally valuable to whatever an individual decides to choose as their path into the industry.
0: All right, Chris Atchison, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, though, for joining us and for talking more about the jobs in the industry and the industry in general. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Joe.
0: Well, as you've been hearing in the news, Jackson Prosco, who was in Turkey, has been reporting on the search effort that is continuing, as well as what people are seeing on the streets after that devastating
3: earthquake. Earlier today, we uh, witnessed a man standing uh, in the street crying over the bodies of his son and daughter. And he couldn't find anyone to collect their bodies. They had been lying in the street for hours. He could not find anyone to take their remains away. And trapped beneath this rubble uh, are, are countless others who perished. Their bodies are still there. It is impossible to retrieve the remains. It is nearly impossible for rescue crews to get access to what lies beneath still based on that miraculous rescue earlier today they are holding out hope across the country there have been several hundred live rescues over the past few days of course the odds of finding people alive continue to diminish minute by minute in this cold and in this weather but crews are certainly not giving up hope
0: and he mentioned that miraculous rescue that took place earlier and the connection to the crews from burnaby
3: This scene stretches for block after block after block. There are hundreds of rescue workers working at dozens and dozens of collapsed buildings. A short time ago, a group of firefighters from Burnaby, British Columbia, was actually partaking in a rescue. And they were able to pull a woman alive who'd been trapped beneath the rubble for the past five days. That is a remarkable feat, a remarkable scene. Uh, They were joined by aid workers and rescue workers from multiple countries taking part in this uh, exercise.
0: So joining us now to talk more about this is Scott Murchison. He is a director with the Burnaby Urban Search and Rescue team, not on the ground right now, but Scott has certainly been to earthquake zones in the past. Scott, thank you so much for being with us to talk more about this today. Not a problem. This is certainly, uh, as people are watching uh, with horror in uh, a lot of cases, at what's happening in Turkey and Syria. We know that uh, members of the the Burnaby team and Burnaby firefighters are in that region. They've been taking part in just some amazing rescues and recoveries. What can you tell us uh, about the work that they're doing there?
4: Well, right now they're just in Adiyaman. Um, They've been searching now, this is going on their third day. They're about to deploy on a night operation right now. Um, Today, working with a few other teams, we had some great success, and uh, the rescuers were able to get someone out of a building actually alive, which is unbelievable.
0: and the cheers i think and just seeing the relief so the woman that they they were able to pull out of that rubble um so so she's been there the whole time that just seems so extraordinary that somebody would be able to survive that long in that debris from an earthquake
4: yeah it's pretty amazing uh what people can can do um i believe she was there for about a hundred hours and uh they were able to locate her with some dogs previous to us getting there and then there was a few turkish volunteers around and some other search teams and um basically when they were there um they hit a pinpoint with one of the dogs from the mexican team then called us over and the Um, the Turkish people down there kind of knew the layout of the building. And so they had started uh, digging and trying to get through to them. And then we assisted them with giving them some of our tools and some lighting to cut rebar and go through some concrete. And so they ended up getting her out while we just uh, supported them.
0: What does that do for the morale of the team as well, in that they must be seeing things that... that Thankfully, many of us can only imagine, but dealing with that kind of loss and the death toll that we're now seeing there, to to make that rescue and to find someone still alive, what does that do for the team?
4: I can tell you after talking to them today, they are just elated with uh, the results of today, and they just want to get right back out there right away. Um, dealing with being in a disaster zone, you know that you're just there trying to help as much as you can and work with all the teams around and work under the, the government there and uh, just do our best to get people out so it is difficult to deal with that especially seeing family members they're telling me um, outside of collapsed buildings and uh, wanting them to help so um, yeah it's very difficult but it's uh, rewarding and it's just uh, something that we do we go there and we really just try to give it our best and lend a hand in any way possible that we can
0: And when you say family members asking for help, that's got to be so difficult because there must be situations where it's not safe to go in and family members are there begging people to go in and try and find loved ones, but it's simply not possible?
4: So basically we use all the resources that we have. Um, We have search cameras and um, acoustic sounding devices. And uh, so what we're trying to do is find... uh, targets that have been previous previously identified or try and identify them ourselves but we're trying to get to the most uh, viable people that might possibly still be alive after being being there for a hundred hours it's uh, it's it's difficult to survive for that amount of time
0: and it's interesting. So when you talk about the equipment, so it's not kind of going in blind and thinking, well, maybe there's there's someone in this building, or there's there's a chance here. It really is that kind of high tech equipment. So crews know where to focus and and whether or not it's 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 it would be the right choice to go into to a certain area.
4: Yeah, it's a lot of hard work in gaining information, doing risk assessments, and then trying to stabilize a scene so that we're safe and everyone around us is safe as well. And it's just basically working with the people that are there. And uh, just we do have some high-tech equipment, but it's a lot of just hard work. And uh, we just try and lend a hand wherever we can.
0: I know there's been challenges as well with the temperature. It's been very cold and uh, like you said, working into the night. Uh, how how do crews deal with that and and still keep going on and continuing with the searches?
4: Well, we're constantly moving, making sure that we're fueled as we go, getting a tiny bit of rest whenever we can. Um, we just keep going. And uh, I think you keep going because you see the people around you that are actually affected by this. and. They're the ones that are really in the in the strife and we're just gonna try and work as hard as we can while we're there to help them out.
0: How long will the crew stay there?
4: Uh they'll be up be there until possibly the fourteenth or fifteenth.
0: And, and with the training that goes into this, how long have the, the members of this team trained? I know you, you mentioned some other operations as well, but what kind of training goes into this to make sure you are able to use the equipment and you, and you can go into this area and, uh, and know exactly what you're doing and, again, not put anybody in danger?
4: Um, we have urban search training. We have um, technical search training, technical rescue training. Um, there's just a lot of things that go into it and then like it put, putting in place a command system as well, and just making sure that everything's safe when we, when we're going in there. Um, a lot of the crews are quite experienced. Some have been to the earthquakes in Nepal in 2015. Uh, some have been to the Bahamas during the hurricane there in 2019. And there's a couple previous ones, but yeah.
0: I, re- I remember, I think, talking to somebody on the team or, or covering a bit of the deployment to Nepal. And, and I would imagine, too, having been on a, a mission like that, d- does that help you better prepare for what they'll be dealing with right now in Turkey, or is everyone completely different?
4: I think every situation is different, and you just have to be dynamic in those situations and just work with all the teams around you and just um, give it your best effort wherever you are
0: and and so at this point then I know you've been keeping in touch with the crews on the ground and again that miraculous rescue of the woman who'd been there for like you said up to a hundred hours I know there were some reports that they thought that at that point when they when they rescued her that there was possibly another person still alive in that rubble in that same area but like you said too it's it's pretty amazing that that there are still survivors so at, at what point do they kind of, shift what they're doing and and it does become more of a recovery mission.
4: Uh, I'm not I can't really speak to that. I'm not exactly sure how long um the authorities there will keep going on their rescues, but as long as there's still people around, they'll keep
0: working. When they they're in the midst of this and they're they're doing this, so whose call is it then as far as so that they will stay there and keep working and stay deployed and, and keep searching?
4: We're working under an emergency operations center and AFAD, it's um a the Turkish oversight for emergency response um so it's totally their call we're just there to lend a hand wherever we can and we'll do whatever we can to help them out
0: all right Scott thank you so much for taking the time it's just amazing work all the crews and everybody who has gone there to help out so thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this
4: okay thanks a lot